Hello, and welcome to The Source of Uncertainty, a Buchla podcast for you. My name is Kyle Swisher. And I'm Robert Standifer. And thanks for coming back to the show. Happy Halloween, uh, right? Halloween? That's yeah. Up? Yeah. Yeah. Gonna, yeah. Gonna dress up and stay inside. <laughs> Same as every I'm mean, actually like, yeah, well, I mean, I guess it would be different. It's like, oh, I actually have clothes on because I never leave the house, so... You know. Do do you still have that costume that you wore last year, like um, you know the full body skeleton bodysuit, like Johnny and, and Karate Kid? <laughs> do, you still, do you still have that? Because you should wear that. No, I don't have that one. I've got some. I I did. I got a costume after Halloween last year Cheapo. to get. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, but it was like for a performance, like where we had these like robes on and stuff. And oh, uh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, it was this thing with the plague, the plague mask. Yeah, well, yeah, that's what. Yeah, Bradley um, from uh, Modular Seattle fame was yeah. uh, was wearing that one, and I had just like a black kind of cover masking that you could kind of see through. But, um, but I was I was noting how I like looked on the futon behind me and where my kind of office studio is, and it's like, oh yeah, that's still there from last year <laughs> wow. that I haven't. I usually project a scary movie on the side of my house for trick-or-treaters where mm-hmm. I used, at least where I used to live and like now I live down a long driveway you know I live down a long driveway which is creepy on its own anyway but I the, the last time I showed a movie it was children of the corn and <laughs> it seemed and there's a lot of talking in that movie there's a lot in that movie where nothing really happens which is partly mm-hmm. what makes it so scary you know but every time a kid came up to the door, Malachi was killing someone, or, <laughs> or like the guys putting kids putting the guy's hand in the blender, you know, and <laughs> so it's just like just the, wholesome Halloween fun. Just the know? exact moments when <laughs> some something scary was going on, and none of the psychological horror of that movie was conveyed yeah. by being projected. It was only when these like four year old kids. Also, side note: this was in Des Moines, Iowa. And they don't do Halloween trick-or-treating. They do beggar's night on October 30th. And instead of saying trick-or-treat when you open the door, they tell you a joke. Really? Yeah. Like, why is six afraid of seven because seven, eight, nine? A joke like that. Okay. Isn't and then you're weird? like, ha, 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 let me. That's Then you wow. give them the candy and they you leave. for it. Yeah. I... And it's on, it's on the 30th, which is... And, and then do they not come out on the 31st? No, no, they, they stay home on the 31st. Wow. Is, um, yeah. And I, I asked one time, why is that? And the answer was from this particular person, because on Halloween is when everybody goes out and commits mischief. And I thought, well, why wouldn't they just do that on the 30th if that's what everybody's doing all the trick-or-treating stuff anyway? It's sort of like how the pe- people say we do daylight saving time because the chickens <laughs> will get up later. Like they don't have a concept of time. <laughs> they don't look at the sun coming up and the rooster's like, well, 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 it's an hour later than normally. So <laughs> yeah, settle down. Yeah. So yeah. Halloween. Did, happy, happy Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. I did do for a couple last couple of years. I just like set up some more, some like menacing, Krell patch and kind of blast oh, that cool. out my window yeah. for a little ambiance, but that'd be me. I'm going to play that frequency that only young people can hear. 
So, <laughs> so they're like, trick or treat. What is yeah. that? And you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I just realized talking about beggars night, our total downloads per month will probably go down by quite a lot when the folks in the Midwest hear me talking about it and think I'm dis- disrespecting that Midwestern <laughs> tradition. But I, I actually really miss living in Iowa. It was, it was really nice, really fun place. Had a beautiful house. But anyway, that's a story for another show. What's going on, man? How you been? Uh, pretty good. Been doing a lot of patching. Um, I'm getting an album together. Uh, Sweet. Yeah, so that's... I'll have more information on that next month, but that's been taking up a bit of time. So, so yeah, I'll talk about that more next month. You? Cool. Well, let's table stuff. I... So yeah, you want me to tell you? Want, do you want to hear what I've been doing? Do <laughs> I you want to hear what to? you're doing. One day, let me tell you a story. One day, in the haze of boredom that comes with the COVID lockdown, I somehow mm-hmm. I was watching videos about Ferraris and stuff on YouTube, and so now YouTube's showing me all kinds of you know recommendations for stuff like car crashes and things, cool, cool, <laughs> which cool. is true. They're bringing recall. And so anyway, going from looking at a video about a Ferrari to a video of a car crash and then something about Studio One, I discovered this genre of music called Death Dream, which okay. is, um, I think it's a subgenre of Vaporwave. So it's got this glitchy thing to it. And I can't tell you who any of the artists are because they're all Korean. Mm. And, um, and, and they're not American, not like Romanized words. Like they're just the Korean words. So I can't even try to say what their names are. Anywho, they take samples and chop them up into into patterns. And the samples are played really, really slow in this particular example. And the pattern is fast. So you're hearing repetition in the pattern. But because the sample is slow, your brain thinks it's hearing the same thing over and over again. But it's just enough variance to not get boring. So it puts you in sort of this weird trance-like state. Mm-hmm. And then there's other stuff about it where they delete the music and stuff. But but anyway, the applicability to this conversation, my friend, is that I've started trying to make that kind of music on my Buchla system because I have the 1979 SMP, you know, clouds, where I can kind of sample something. And then 272E for radio stuff, for interesting sounds. And then so many pulse sources, you know, 251E, 252E, 281E, and so on. So I started trying to take a um, like a set of of pulses and CV out from the 251E, 50 stages of that that I randomized. So there's a combination that you can put with the knobs and stuff where it will randomize the voltages for each stage, and then they just repeat that over and over again. Unlike say the 266, which will randomize each time. And then mm-hmm. I randomized the intervals and some other things. So it speeds through this with control voltages coming out that change the station on the 272E and then we'll scrub through the sample and the SMP to make this kind of glitchy, vapor wavy, death dream type thing, which I can't stand listening to most of that type of music. No offense to that at all, <laughs> <laughs> but which I think is the point actually. Um, uh-huh. but, this exercise of trying to do this in Buchla was really, really interesting because it, um, I have some great modules like the DSD for the delay and, you know, the SMP, like I was saying, 
mm-hmm. and the sources and all. But the I got something like it that wasn't it, you know, which is also pretty neat in its own right. But the um, what I found is that at a certain point, the kind of the just the repeating pattern would need to be reset. Unlike in the kind of music I was listening to, where the samples were really long and they had actually chopped them up, you know, it was just a different, it was like impossible to actually duplicate that. Mm. But you, when you were at EMS and I asked you to make a black metal song, (laughs) which I think you posted on YouTube, by the way, that's where I saw it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you did something like this, that, that chopping it up, right? Yeah. For the the blast beats. In that, yeah. Cause that, um, yeah, it reminds me of using the the two eighty eight um, V, the time domain processor, um, which is a delay module, and that has like this whole section where um, it is kind of like a looper slash sampler. Um, you can either trigger it to like grab on to this you know section of whatever is is being pumped through the thing. Or it also has a um, like an envelope follower sensitivity knob, so it's like once it peaks in volume or something, it will then latch onto that portion until it gets another peak that it hears, and it'll move on to the next thing. And then you can, yeah, adjust like the timing of the RAM or something to like speed it up or slow it down. So basically, I got this kind of gnarly beat going that sounded like a blast beat <laughs> to me. Yeah, and then cool. I could, I, yeah. And I could like switch the, the switch to go to like, it then kind of made it to go to like double time and then to half time. So I would do like little fills by flipping it back and forth and kind of perform the thing. Um, so yeah, that was kind of, it, it reminded me of, of what, yeah, I think you were kind of maybe trying to, to go for. Um, yeah, it was out of the normal domain for me, no pun intended, um, because time domain processor, get it? So the um, it was out of my comfort zone. It took me zone. a second. Wait a second. I see what he did here. <laughs> and then right where it was doing, then you yeah, acknowledge that. We'll just, there was a little, bit of, a little bit of a delay. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so I knew when I, I, like when I heard this Death Dream stuff, which was this, this stuff was really neat. I thought I can do that on my Buchla. I can hear it like 281 pulse, change the shape of the decay and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I approximated what I was going for. But the, and I, I think that I, my point isn't that I lack the modules or the skill or whatever to accomplish it. It's really that it, it, it isn't composition to me, like me composing. So I, mm-hmm. I normally don't sit down and, and start just sending sounds and, you know, following the sound like Todd does. Mm-hmm. I tend to have a motif. Oh, wait, hold on. Hold on. Take a drink. Yeah. I, I need to get some bourbon up here. <laughs> we'll finish the whole bottle each episode. But I usually have like some theme, some compositional, compositional theme. And mm-hmm. I can work within that very successfully. But this kind of, I like taking myself out of my comfort zone with Bukla because that's really why I have it. You know, it's like, that's why I use it. I want to randomize the 251E and really hate that the pitches get super high, but that's what I have, you know, cause it'll go all the way up to 10 volts. And, <laughs> and so I, I like the way it turned out. So what I think I'm going to do, the reason I mention all of this is because I'm going to record like an EP of this stuff, like maybe 40 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. 
cool. and release that because I haven't released anything in a long time. I think that probably most listeners wonder if I'm just one of those computer-generated voices because no, I never release any music. My band camp is dusty. <laughs> you Google me and it's like my work stuff. You're like, this guy, <laughs> the real Robert died a long time ago. <laughs> this, is, this is a bot. <laughs> yeah. And you've just got this computer generating because you needed a co-host and you, and you mm-hmm. were like, I, I don't yeah. want people. Yeah. So I'm going to release some music to prove that it's proof of life. I'm going to release this Bukla wave. That's awesome. <laughs> album, maybe next month or probably December, realistically. You know, it's really funny um, uh, for uh, listeners. I hope that they also listen to the uh, Podular Modcast, uh, Tim Held show, and he started that show with um, uh, with a co-host. And I had for like a year after kind of getting to know Tim always told him that like, but the co-host kind of only was around for me about 10 episodes or, or so. And, um, his name was Ian. And, but that was like, you know what? That was Tyler Durden. Like that guy doesn't actually <laughs> yeah. exist. Like you just change your voice. <laughs> and all of a sudden this was Ian. And, uh, and yeah, I got a, I, I got a good amount of material out of that until I actually met Ian and he was like, kind of miffed at me for like trying to i don't know i guess erase him i'm looking forward to uh getting some music out of you do you think well we'll see what you want to do but i feel like you should do an artist spotlight i i think i should be the artist spotlight every episode every yeah yeah okay all right i think that (laughs) and it's 30 minutes of silence (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> might hey that's a call out to uh to people um that yeah if you have some music that you'd like to share and get on the show please contact us uh through our website sourceofuncertainty.audio yeah we lo- i listen to that i listen to the stuff that comes in from people and it's there's so much variety man it's crazy how much is out there that you just don't i didn't know you know Buclo was involved in something that i just discovered on my own but there's a lot of cool stuff Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I love I love hearing all of this. I wish we could do just entire episodes about that, like we used to do, you know, with the artist spotlight in the past. Mm-hmm. But I don't have that much energy. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm getting old. I just had an idea for an artist spotlight. I'm going to take an an old episode of this show that we're on right now, Source mm-hmm. of Uncertainty, and I'm going to play it out a set of studio monitors into a microphone into my 230e. And just record that, and that'll be my album. They, you know, we talked to somebody that's actually on this episode. That kind of he kind of talked about performing in that in he that did? way. Well, he must mm-hmm. have been a huge influence on me. <laughs> um, we've got a uh, Daniel Skevington on the show from Dunnington Audio, um, who has been making these cool little. Um, music easel enhancements uh mainly for like the uh cloned easel versions but um but now has a couple uh clone modules of his own the uh 281 function generator and the 258 um dual oscillator and has kind of taken what roman had done with those but um update them a bit so um so yeah i'm actually gonna demo the 258d a bit 
and then we'll get into talking with Daniel and about like, yeah, the cool music that he makes with, um, you know, cluing us into how he uses the 230 because we recorded this a a few months ago before I had mine. And and I think before, or maybe you had just gotten yours or right around then. Yeah. And I just started with it. Yep. Yeah. And he had talked about how much he was in that module and it's like, Oh, do tell. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He surprised me. It was, yeah, it was really surprised in a good way, you know, for being a module designer, that's kind of the bucket I put him in, but there's so much more to him. So really cool guy. Great conversation. Actually, before we go to that stuff, uh, we had all those music recommendations last month that we had on the last episode, and um, and I felt like I missed a few that, yeah, I didn't get a shout out. There's a bunch that um, that I, <laughs> I found. I was like, oh, yeah, forgot to say that one, forgot to say that one, forgot to say that one. Um, so just to, to shout out a few, um, uh, one album by uh, Wave Freak. It's called uh, Through Another Looking Glass, and he it's a EP and all done on his uh, 200E. So check that out on Bandcamp. Uh, these are all going to be on Bandcamp, by the way. Um, also, Spin Patterns from Matt Watson. And uh, he's in Australia and recorded this kind of pre-COVID times um, at uh, Mess. Do you know what that is, Robert? It's yeah, the, I sure the, do, man. <laughs> Yeah, the Melbourne yeah. Electronic uh, Sound Studio. I want to see. I want to go there so bad. Yeah, I think I fall. Maybe they have a Twitter account. They or, have an um, Instagram. Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Mess, mess Ltd. Yeah, and yeah, it's amazing, man. Amazing. Drooling over that <laughs> yeah. that place, um, and so yeah, Matt recorded stuff on on their 200 system there, and then um, you know spent much of COVID putting the album together. Um, really good stuff and i guess he um i think he helps run that place so wow we should we should yeah maybe we'll talk to him at some point that could be fun um and then the album uh gypsy and i believe the uh the name of the um artist is naiva ny nyvva yeah yeah and they had i think an ep out before this. this is the first full length album um but they blend like Bukla and uh, Sitar together. Um, And it's amazing stuff. Yeah. I mean, that at first blush, someone might think Bukla and a Sitar, but they're like perfectly matched for each other. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. So yeah, definitely check that out. Okay. Now let's, uh, let's dig into the 258D by Dunnington Audio. Okay, we're going to talk about the dual oscillator model 258D by Dunnington Audio. Um, So before we go into the sounds and features of this module, um, I just wanted to kind of talk about the original uh, 258. So this was the first of the two classic oscillators in the 200 system. From what I kind of gather and looking at old information and and talking to people that dealt with the 100 system, uh, dealt with, that's not really nice, used it, um, (laughs) is that, and kind of in looking with our um, 
when we were looking at the red panel system last year and we had, uh, I believe it was the 255 oscillator, you kind of needed a voltage processor to use it. It, you know, if you're going to use uh, an outside or an external voltage, there's a switch on the oscillator. So, um, so yeah, you either did internal or you could use the, um, the, uh, frequency knob, or if you flipped it into external, it, that frequency knob had no, uh, you could not adjust it at all. And it was just whatever was coming into that input. And from what I gather, you would kind of have a lot of those 156, um, CV processors scattered around the system. Um, and a lot of the time they're kind of doing heavy duty, shaping the control voltage going into those oscillators. So kind of from what I gather, just looking at this oscillator and even in, um, I've seen in kind of one of the brochures, uh, if you go to the, uh, our old friends at the, uh, MEMS project, which is a uh, MEMS project.info under their 200 system or section, you'll see, uh, um, information on the 258 and yeah, in the information and in selling this oscillator was like no processors needed for, <laughs> for this oscillator because, uh, for each section it has, uh, two CV inputs, which is kind of interesting. And in that language there, it kind of, uh, harkens back to what, how they were selling the CV processor. So, so yeah, they, instead of having like in the old system, they had a dual saw and a dual square oscillator, they've mixed it. So up top there is a, a saw wave oscillator and below is a um, square oscillator. Like the old oscillators that were assigned to saw or assigned to square, um, this has the same function, but it's actually CV controllable. Um, both have an FM input, which was like on the um, 100 series uh, oscillators, and they have multiple outputs of that audio. So what is different about this one? Um, a few things. Um, basically, and which we'll get into with Daniel later on, so I kind of won't go into um, too much uh, depth because we'll talk about it in the interview. Um, but one of the main things, uh, one of the CV processor sections or CV inputs had um, a little mini jack that would help kind of scale uh, the the incoming input a little bit, like a secondary controller to it. And so that's, uh, that's done away with and there's now a gray jack input that is um, for 1.2 volt per octave uh, kind of set input. Uh, I believe this might have been, um, stems back to when Mark Verbos was doing clones. And I believe on his 258 clones had the same function, which is really helpful when you're using a, like a 218. Um, what's nice about this, it's actually you when using it with my 218, it tracks better than using it with the, uh, easels oscillators. So that's cool. Um, and yeah, one thing that Daniel's done is given the option to also scale back the frequency range. So it goes from, uh, five kilohertz, um, up to 20,000 kilohertz. So that's what's listed on the panel, but he can set that back to just five to 10,000 kilohertz. Cause I don't know if you've heard 20,000 kilohertz. I haven't. 
because I think my hearing caps out at like 13 to 15,000 and it's not really a, a range I <laughs> I like to hang out in anyways. So um, by scaling that back, you then have, he uh, describes kind of like having better control over the oscillator. It's, it's able, able to track uh, incoming CV voltage a bit better. So, um, so yeah, and then the last thing, uh, which I'll show off in just a second, is there's uh, each oscillator has three audio outputs, and the first two are the you know sine to saw or sine to square, depending on which oscillator it is. Um, but the third output is actually a triangle output, and that has no effect from the wave shape. Um, just it will you know kind of track the pitch and everything, but that wave shape doesn't have any effect on it, uh, which is nice because you can use that to, um, as you know, A, you can use it as a secondary output and kind of maybe fill in some frequency gaps if you're using it like with a saw wave, but maybe you want to have um, a little bit more uh, warmth and bass to, to that sound that can help, um, yeah, using that secondary one. Or you can use it to FM the other oscillator or any other oscillators in your system um so yeah we'll take a look at that and then sorry one more thing that i'll talk about is on the uh behind the panel you can actually switch um to have both oscillators be saws or squares so you could have yeah two saws two squares or like it's set up a saw and a square so yeah let's hear this thing so I'm gonna turn on a the saw wave right now, and this is just in sine mode, and I'll sweep up the wave shape, and I'll go over to the square, which I've pitched much lower, and bring it up the square wave shape. I should also mention that our friend of the pod, uh, Augustus Green, did a really good video. He got one of these too. Um, so yeah, go to the Galaxy Electric's YouTube page and yeah, they've got a great kind of in-depth video on this. So I'll, you know, maybe fill in some gaps here and there of what he, he didn't already cover, but a lot will <laughs> kind of be retreading what he did. Um, so yeah, I guess I'll also just let you hear, I'll switch over from, so here we have the saw, and I'm gonna unplug this and go over to the triangle. So I can actually have both going at the same time. Which is a little bit hard to probably. There's a little bit more of the uh, triangle compared to the sign and the saw. Um, okay, so I'm gonna go into in a, a patch in a few more minutes that will kind of go into all the different frequency inputs, but um, I'll just show off, you can CV these, uh, uh, the wave shape. So I've got a 251, or sorry, 281 quad function generator 
um, envelope with a pretty slow envelope, bring that up and down. I'm going to turn that up. Um, what I find is kind of fun is getting into audio rate with your modulation into this. So you start to get these cool overtones, which are good for drones and stuff. So now we're going to get to the point where if you're listening to this like at work with coworkers, I don't know if anybody has kind of coworkers that I work with anymore um, in the kind of world that we're living in, or if you're listening uh, this next to like a, a child or a significant other, they're going to be like, what are you listening to? We're going to start um, uh, bringing in the frequency modulation and cross modulating these so I'm gonna bring these up and I'm just gonna go from their main that's what's kind of nice about having these three different outputs um, I'm gonna go from their main output so like the sine to saw or sine to square and start to cross modulate them um, so if we go subtle what's kind of nice um, so I'm gonna bring up the FM on the saw wave and I'll turn it to saw wave so that's about halfway up that's about three o'clock on the dial and that's full on actually I'm gonna take away the saw wave and so that's an assigned frequency um, that's coming from the square wave or oscillator I'm gonna now bring that to a square wave and do that again Um, Alright, so I'm going to bring this back down a bit, and I'm going to turn up the frequency of this square wave oscillator. So I've got the FM turned up pretty high, the frequency of the oscillator is up pretty high. And I'll kind of sideband sweeps while I push up and down the frequency of the modulating oscillator. So I've got the frequency all the way down. I'm going to bring this back down to a sine. I'm going to turn the FM all the way down on this saw oscillator. Um, what's cool about the um, CV inputs on this thing is that you can apply 
negative voltage. Let me turn that off for a bit. Um, negative voltage to, to this like oscill oscillator that's already down all the way, and it'll push it down even further. So from the MARF, uh, actually, I'm going to bring this. I'm going to turn up the FM just a little bit, so you're kind of getting like a um, a vibrato sound. And I'm going to apply more. Oh, I've got it in the wrong input. Here we go. So I'm applying more voltage to push down the frequency of the modulating oscillator. And as you can hear, it can get pretty slow. And that's back up to its lowest point. Alright, now it's time to get real gross and we'll have both of these going at the same time. So I'm going to turn the FM up about, to about 11 o'clock on both of these. Starting to get into uh, chicken sounds. I'm pushing up the FM on both of these up to about 2 o'clock. And both the uh, square wave and saw wave wave shapes are at their max. So, yeah, a lot of weirdness. So that, um, you know, that, that can be fun. Um, but sometimes a useful way to use those would be to, um, in kind of more percussive, adding the low pass gate and an envelope to that instead of just two low pass gates wide open, um, we can try and make, you know, kind of more interesting percussive sounds with that. So let me try and so yeah, I've got a sequence of pulses trigger that I'm I've got on the uh, MARF and so I have FM turned up on the sawtooth wave and I have it down on the uh, square wave that's having kind of more of the bass note if I can bring that up and We're just going to bring up the low pass gate. You can hear that. That's kind of a mess, but a bit more interesting when you 
running through the low pass gate. So yeah, now I'll go on to another patch going into, yeah, different ways on using the, um, the frequency inputs on this thing. So we're going to take a look at all the different ways to use all these pitch inputs on the 258D. Um, I'm going to leave each oscillator in their um, main wave shape section. So the saw is going to be completely at saw and the square is going to be fully at uh, square. I'm not going to modify those at all. Uh, but I am using the triangle outputs um, as well as the main outputs for both of these. Um, because, yeah, just wanted to kind of fill out the uh, the sounds a little bit more. Um, so to first start on the um, on the square section down below, um, what I'm going to do here is have uh, both sections of the MARF uh, do some sequencing and then also transpose that sequence. So I'm going to run the left side of the MARF into the first input, and I'm going to have a quick... Uh, four-step sequence there and then I've got I think it's about five steps um, on the second side of the MARF to um, yeah to start transposing that sequence so here's the main sequence so yeah just four um, I have the uh, reference output of the left section going into the uh, low pass gate that covers the uh, triangle output of this uh, part of the 258. So when I am going to press the start on the other um, uh, function generator to start the transposing and every time that changes that's going to send out an envelope or trigger to an envelope uh, which will then bring in the saw so you hear that now or sorry the square and I timed the uh, envelope to roughly match the same length as the uh, each step of the uh, uh, transposing sequence. All right, so turn that off. And now to go up to the saw section. Um, first off, I have the pitch from the uh, 218 on my easel going into this. Um, I also have the trigger from of that going into uh, an envelope that's then opening both low pass gates for the um, for both the saw and the triangle section. So, so if I here's just the triangle by itself. Here's the saw by itself. Then I'll do both. So the first thing that I'm going to do, so that's going into the gray input that has the 
1.2 volt per octave. Um, so that is changing pitch there. Um, what I've got going is, um, let's see, on the the second uh, pitch input over here, I'm going to have a really fast uh, function generator from the 281 going into it. Uh, I'm just going to open the low-pass gate so we can kind of hear it. So I've plugged that in now. And I've just turned up the input on the 251, or the... Um, yeah, the attenuator up just a tiniest bit to basically get like a semitone um, push upwards with um, with the CV. So you can hear that very fast um, vibrato now. Um, if I had a, it took a little bit just to like barely get it up there. Um, if I had a um, some sort of voltage processor that I could first run the 281 on uh, looping envelope into I could kind of attenuate that and then put it into the uh, pitch input and have you know a little bit greater range with that to kind of finally dial that in but I don't have one at this moment in time but hopefully soon that will um, change so yeah to bring that back up And then what's kind of fun is you can play with the attack and decay to get different types of, um, of vibrato. So if I, I can turn these both way up, or not way up, but... So yeah, that's, they're both at about three o'clock on the dial. We can get really fast ones. Um, we can turn like the attack all the way down, or we can turn the decay all the way down and have the attack up. And then what's kind of neat is if you turn them all the way up as far as they go, um, the audio rate kind of brings it to where it's it's null. <laughs> it's going so fast that um, you can kind of maybe hear a little audio rate buzz. Um, kind of ghost note but it's kind of nice because you can bring in and out this vibrato um, when you want to um, and then the other kind of weird thing I'm gonna do is take a square wave out of the uh, low frequency oscillator on the 259 and I'll put that into the other in pitch input and I have this set to be an octave so I'll bring that back up and you'll hear so yeah you've got that set at an octave and I can also bring in the vibrato So yeah, kind of cool to have all three pitch inputs working so I could change with the 218 keyboard. And I've got the vibrato plus this, um, this octave jumping uh, square wave. Uh, what I've also got set up actually, uh, just for, that was fun with this patch, is I could put pressure from the 218 to go into the uh, frequency of the modulation oscillator so the more pressure I put down 
the faster that LFO will go. So yeah, if I were to throw everything all together, start my square wave sequencing going, stuff. Okay, so he, we're here with uh, Daniel Skevington and his buddy Milton chowing down in the background uh, from uh, Dunnington Audio. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Hi. Yeah, welcome. So um, I we kind of, you know, met over the internet um, fairly recently. So I would like to kind of just get more of your background. Um, like, tell us where you're from. I would, I don't want to assume Dunnington, you know? <laughs> I thought uh, it was your name. Well, D uh, Dunnington is actually a, like, there's a town not very far from where I live called Dunnington. But the reason that the, um, the company is Dunnington or, well, a company in inverted commas, um, <laughs> yeah. when I first started kind of getting involved in electronics uh i was kind of w working with a guy whose surname was dunlop um and so we kind of smushed our names together um and made dunnington and then <laughs> gotcha. Ooh, okay. he like um he doesn't really kind of do this stuff anymore but um that i just kind of i'd always use that name so i kept using it um but yeah um that's uh i i don't live there i've never been there <laughs> gotcha. I'm glad I didn't assume then. Well, you're, you're yeah. stuck with it. You're stuck with it now because we call your modules D, like 258D and 281D. Yeah, but, you know, my first name is Daniel, so D for oh, Daniel. Oh, well, yeah, 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 that works. Yeah. So you can change it. Go ahead. <laughs> Daniel Audio. Um, <laughs> so, so where are you uh, currently? Where do you live? Uh, so I'm based in in Leeds in the UK, um, which is kind of. I guess that the if you haven't heard of Leeds, then the nearest city that most Americans would have heard of would be Manchester. Which is, mm -hmm. so Manchester and Leeds are kind of the two biggest cities in the the north of England. Um, so we're, I'm kind of two two and a half hours north of London, pretty much. Okay, right in the middle. Yeah, um, yeah. there's some famous people from Leeds. Like uh, Mel B from the Spice Girls. Yes, she's from Leeds. She is from Leeds. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, the Who live at Leeds. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty famous. Recorded like fifteen minutes from my house. Um, oh, very cool. And I don't know who else is from Leeds. There we go. Um, well, isn't there? Yeah, isn't there a festival every year? Uh, yeah, there is. The the. Um, which is kind of like twinned with, there's another festi festival, Reading Festival. Um, mm -hmm. And they have 
it's like all the same bands, but they play like one day in Reading and then they play in Leeds the next day or uh, something like that. I mean, it, okay. it, they don't really have anything that would be of interest to me. So <laughs> I, I don't know that much about it, but it, that happens here. Yeah. yeah. And it, I guess yeah. in the normal music world, that you know, it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a very big deal. Like all my favorite bands play at the same time. Like the Cure and Travis, and I mean, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, okay, so let's get into uh, maybe you know where you let us down the not normal music that you're into, <laughs> and uh, how you kind of got into Bukla. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, that's kind of circuitous. the The sort of short version would be, um, I really love uh, Alvin Lucier, um, and he had uh david rosenboom was a a student of mm-hmm. alvin lucier's so through listening to alvin lucier records and hearing david rosenboom's name i uh got a copy of the brainwave music record which is um music that has a, a bukla on it um a 200 mm-hmm. system i think um and that that was kind of the first record i heard that that used bukla synthesizers i think um Mm -hmm. but at the time that i heard that i was kind of um already building my own equipment so i kind of i started building synthesizers i would kind of like early early mid 2000s um okay sort of at the time it was basically Dope for and um, a, a British company called Analog Systems um, were the kind of yeah. uh, the the modular manufacturers who existed at the time. Um, mm-hmm. I had a an Analog Systems set up uh, because they were UK based, so I thought the support would be better. Um, the the kind of so it's not exactly the same as Euro format the holes are in a different mm-hmm. place and the power connector is different. So you couldn't plug anything else in. So when there were things that I wanted to do musically, which I couldn't do with the stuff that was available from analog systems, I started building my own modules that kind of fit that format. Um, mm-hmm. And while I was doing that, so there were a bunch of bunch of things that I built that were kind of my own ideas or combinations of other ideas. And then at some point I was looking for, um, I needed a bunch of envelope followers. Um, and I was looking at the kind of schematics that were available, what looked interesting and the two thirty looked quite in- interesting. <laughs> so, uh, I built yeah, some two thirty right there. Yeah. Uh, I built yeah. some two thirty style envelope followers, um, got on well with that. Like, the way they worked and kind of looked more into the other designs for it from there. Um, and so I, I ended up actually with quite a lot of kind of bootless style things in that system mm-hmm. before um, I kind of started building actual like bookless format modules. What's your your kind of background getting you into um, having the skills to <laughs> to start building your own stuff? I've I kind of have been involved in or interested in um, a lot of fairly non-commercial 
music uh, since I was, I was really lucky living in Leeds and also um, I kind of had a tangential connection to um, an organization called the Termite Club that ran, uh, that ran for kind of 30 years and that was like a long-running Leeds-based free and improvised music society. So they would book book gigs um, and organize. They quite often had a yearly festival. Um, so I got to see when I was sort of, you know, 17 plus a lot of like pretty insane stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was kind of my, and, and that had a real like kind of punk rock element to it as well. Like it mm-hmm. was all when you went to the show, like you would meet everyone who'd organized the show and you would meet all the musicians and it was really easy to kind of talk to people and find things out. Um, so I was kind of operating in this like DIY kind of world. No one has any money. So when your stuff breaks, like you just have to learn to fix it. And that's really, um, how I ended up getting involved in, audio electronics really i had done a year of an electronics degree at university which i dropped out of um mm-hmm. and i well i i switched to a computing course uh, for some reason which i now <laughs> absolutely regret it was a terrible decision but um <laughs> that just meant that because i had the, a bit of this background i could fix stuff and i could build stuff so lots of people that i was in bands with or the bands that we played with would ask me to fix stuff or build stuff for them. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, you know, out of the, out of, off the back of that, I kind of became someone who was known to do that sort of thing in, in the area that I, I live in. Gotcha. And then that just kind of transitioned you into, yeah, doing everything DIY? Pre- pretty much. I mean, I have a probably some kind of, uh, like mental health problem where like I just fucking can't stop building stuff. So <laughs> I'm really like my first proper instrument that I played in bands was drums. And then mm-hmm. um, like a, a few, a few years ago, kind of like four or five years ago, I kind of sold all the drum stuff that I had at that point in time. It was like, okay, I'm going to build my own drum kit because I definitely need to spend like however much time that was like learning how to do it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, the shape. Yeah. Kind of like, yeah. Go from having a perfectly serviceable instrument, get rid of that. <laughs> and I'm going to like make something myself from scratch. And I just, that seems to be a, something of a compulsion. And so when I was interested mm-hmm. in or getting interested in electronic music or incorporating electronics into the music that I was making, um well certainly at the time i knew i was interested in modular synthesizers because that those were the first synthesizers that i was exposed to um i was again super lucky i did um like a a work experience placement which i don't this kind of thing where you like go and try a job for for a month or whatever okay um and the the placement that i did uh I looked into uh, doing some work at the um, electronic music studio at the University of York, which is not very far from me. 
uh, which is where I don't know if you, uh, I the kind of most famous person I think who worked there was Trevor Wishart. Did a lot of his stuff there, which was to all kind okay. of tape, tape manipulation um, and transforming sound. Um, and they had um, like a super tiny kind of five module Moog setup and a VCS three. So I completely mm. fell in love with the VCS three. Um, and when I, and so I knew I was interested in synthesizers, but when I came to use like a conventional keyboard synthesizer after being exposed to the VCS three, the normal synthesizer didn't make any sense to me. I was just like, you <laughs> yeah. can't like, how am I supposed to reconfigure where everything is going to make feedback? You can't do it. Yeah. So yeah, you're locked in. Yeah. So I knew it was going to be modular stuff really. Um, and that because I was already building amplifiers and building other kind of sound processing equipment, it just made sense um, to, yeah. to start building. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, okay. So I guess now to, to fast forward um, and getting into maybe your first couple products, um, they're kind of associated with the easel, right? The, um, uh, or kind of upgrading some things on, yeah, so on the easel clone. I had uh, built um, one of the uh, easel clones that um, Roman Filipov uh, was making, um, mm -hmm. and the when I built that, um, I kind of found that there were a couple of things about it that didn't behave in the way that I expected. Um, so I did a, a bit of a, I mean, generally speaking, whenever I've built anything, I'll always will have done quite a lot of looking at schematics. Cause I like to know actually how it works. I'm not really interested in just like stuffing circuit boards is not very interesting. Yeah. But the, the kind of theory behind it, theory of operation and, and kind of understanding what's going on is interesting. And also, you know, tied into what we've just been talking about, I kind of feel for me, it's super important that I can fix things. If they like, if I have a, a show next week and my easel is on fire, I need to know that like <laughs> I can deal with that. I don't want to like have to wait for someone else to be ready to do it. Um, yeah. So the stuff that um, was kind of not, um, not behaving in the way that, I was expecting like primarily be because of the kind of music that I make, I wanted to be able to hold notes for really extended periods of time. Um, mm -hmm. And in the, um, the kind of existing design of the easel envelope generator, um, there's a kind of a bug in it that prevents you from being able to do that. So when the envelope generator is in sustain mode, it will sustain for longer than it will in transient mode, but not forever. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. The f kind of the first thing that I did really was um, like a, a daughter board that plugs into the, the envelope generator card that kind of fixes that problem. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then I also made a, a kind of, a little mod board that implements because the original easel didn't have a self cycling envelope. Um, mm -hmm. 
So uh, a way of of adding that in. And I've kind of, both of those designs have, have changed a bit um, over the time that I've been making them. And it, initially I kind of thought, oh, I'll, I'll make five of these and, you know, I'll sell the spare ones and, but then people just keep asking them for them. So, <laughs> yeah, because it's well, yeah, because it's inherent with those. And I think, I think like most people that you know use the easel, and yeah, you throw on that that sustain. And it's like where'd that go? Shouldn't that be on all the time, like every other synthesizer? Um, and and then you also isn't there? Did you, you add like a, a range switch um, or be able to get into yeah, the audio? I mean, that's not. Um... There's nothing kind of, I mean, there's nothing magical in any electronics, but yeah. it, it's very much just a kind of um, a pot on the the 13 and a half volt rail that's used for generating all the control currents um, that allows you, that you can switch in to the, the CV summing node for the, the mod, modulation oscillator so that you can kind of uh, flick that up and, but having it kind of trimmable means that you can tune it. So when you're mm -hmm. in low frequency mode at the top of the range, you can actually have the switch switch up by two octaves or how, what, you know, whatever interval it is that you want it to be so that you can actually use that in a musical way, as well as just being high range, low range. From there, um, I guess you turn your eye on to, to more because like, obviously that was kind of, those are both successful. People keep on asking for them. I mean, successful um, is relative. <laughs> sure. I mean, in all this, in our very small bubble, I guess, too. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I think what happened with that was that I, I built the easel because I like the look of the instrument. I like things that are self-contained or appear to function as a, a kind of cohesive system. Um, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed using it. Um, I like, I enjoyed kind of, or I, a lot of the electronic concepts behind it, I've thought were very interesting, um, kind of, uh, the, you know, somewhat primitive preset storage, uh, and that kind of thing appealed to yeah. me. Um, and so I was looking at other, as I say, at this point I had already built, a bunch of stuff that was kind of based on Buchler modules for a, a like Euro-sized system. Um, mm -hmm. So I was familiar with quite a lot of the designs, but I liked the look of the two nine six, and I've you know that I was kind of thought there wasn't anything else around that did what the two nine six does. So I built one of those, yeah. and and then it was kind of like, oh well, I, I have this like standalone thing now. So that turned into a eighteen space cabinet, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and which I kind of gradually filled up, mostly with like a combination of the stuff that um, Roman Filipov was doing, but also and then a few kind of like third party things. Like um, I have a couple of the TSNMs um, and some Northern Light modular bits and pieces. Um, mm -hmm. And that kind of, when I was looking at the, or deciding how I wanted the system to look, there were a couple of the modules that I really wanted in the system, which I just felt like the, um, 
the available solutions for building those were didn't really like fit with my idea of serviceability. Um, so, mm-hmm. like the the existing the kind of the two five eight that you could get had like pretty poor uh, tracking. Um, yeah, and I've also like I, I just wanted a scaled CV input, which it doesn't have. Um, which you know, which the original didn't have, but the the two five eight style modules that I had built for my other system had a, a scaled input. So the the design that I, I've done for the the two five eight D is basically a, a a rebookler format version of the oscillators that I made for a kind of three U system. Uh, with mm-hmm. a couple of other tw- yeah, a couple of other tweaks and changes that I've I added when I brought it back to the four U format, but basically it was kind of um, there was that, and then the the two eight one was kind of notoriously buggy. Um, like everyone who builds it has weird problems and has to do like odd component substitutions to get it to calibrate properly, or um, there are a bunch of other sort of oddities with with those it was just kind of like well it's got a self-cycle mode but i didn't understand why you wouldn't just implement the self-cycle mode so that when you put it in cycle mode it starts cycling i don't want to have to yeah pick it with something else to get it going yeah i've seen i remember watching that um you know i think myself like others like i remember watching videos of todd barton um using his system and yeah, you'd have to kind of jumpstart it with a pulse from somewhere else to get it going. And so when I got mine and it did, so somebody must've implemented <laughs> that change um, where it, yeah, you just flip it up and it starts self cycling. Like I was like, Oh, okay. So yeah, I think probably people just have such a, a um, like so many different versions of that floating around. Yeah. Um, uh, and then again, it was kind of a thing of like the the more of my system that I've built myself and have all the documentation for, the easier it's going to be for me to fix in you know ten years time. Um, yeah. Which you know, there's like I'm one of the things about building an instrument yourself, or is kind of I'm everything that I build. I'm trying to make something that is going to last me for the entirety of my music making life. And I, I don't want to make things that are going to end up in landfill and, mm-hmm. you know, have kind of um, limited lifespan or uh, or that kind of thing. So the, that was an issue um, with the, uh, the products that you could get from Roman, which were kind of, they mostly worked or they worked as the originals worked. But if you wanted to do something slightly differently, there was no support for that and no, no kind of publicly available documentation. So if you built one and it didn't work, actually going through it and trying to work out, even though most of the schematics would be available in their original format, all of the Mm -hmm. component designators are changed. So actually working out, you know, R30 on, on your build is not the same as R30 in the original schematic. So, it, you know, it's time consuming actually kind of working back and getting that, um, 
getting something working if it doesn't work straight away. Um, mm-hmm. So when I was kind of putting these, uh, the um, my versions of the 258 and 281 together, I was just like, well, I'm making improvements that seem sensible to me or that address issues that other people have had with available versions of these modules. It seems ridiculous not to just kind of make that available um, and and share that knowledge. Um, you know, I have kind of part of my misguided foray into the, uh, computing at university. So I've been kind of interested in and for open source for 20 years. Um, and that's always been mm-hmm. a thing that I, I'm kind of really keen on. Um, so I was just like, I don't want to do all this work. It's useful for me because it's stuff that's going into my system that I use for making music, but I didn't want to just do all that. And then, Oh, I've got that, but it doesn't benefit anyone else mm-hmm. for, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it, I'm, you know, I'd like for any changes or improvements that I've made to be available to anyone that wants to put them into anything that they're building really. Yeah, that's great. Um, I guess to, can we go into some of the specific changes that you did do for, for each of the two modules? So for the, the 258, um, the most obvious one probably would be um, the, the scale TV input um, on, on the front panel. Um, and I, the core of the oscillator is actually like quite a different design from the original 258. So it, it's similar to, um, there's a schematic that Mark Vobos um, drew uh, that's been kind mm-hmm. of floating around forever, and there's various different versions of that. Um, and the, that uses the triangle core from um, an Electronotes oscillator design uh, that was done by Bernie Hutchins in uh, the... I mean, I think that design is from the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's been kind of around forever, but there are... So that that's kind of the heart of my version of the um, the two fifty eight, um, and then I've done various other things like because most of most uh, kind of two hundred systems that you see now are running from the switch mode power supplies. Your plus and minus fifteen volt rails are pretty noisy, and using those mm-hmm. as reference voltages for a pitch control is not the, like the most stable thing in the world. Um, so I've also put in a kind of a, a dedicated voltage reference that runs, that kind of provides the, um, the end stops for the frequency potentiometers so that when you're adjusting the pitch internally, it should be super stable, um, and shouldn't be mm-hmm. affected by fluctuations in the, in the supply rails in the cabinet. Um, so that was a thing that, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily like an essential modification. Um, and certainly for a, a lot of the music that gets made with Buchla systems, it probably doesn't matter. But <laughs> if you're doing anything pitched um, yeah. or particularly, um, again, kind of my interest in 
Lucier and that kind of thing. If you want to do stuff where you have very closely tuned oscillators that are beating against each other, you want those mm-hmm. frequencies to be really stable. Um, so yeah, that was that was something that I kind of um, thought would be useful for me. Um, and then also on the uh, the old version that I had made for my kind of Euro system, um, I had a, a buffered copy of the the triangle core of the oscillator available as an output. Um, so that replaces the the kind of rightmost jack on each oscillator has a the triangle, um, which mm-hmm. means that you can do fairly useful FM with that oscillator, mm-hmm. even if you don't have it, uh, in, even if you're kind of morphed over to the saw or square shape. The saw yeah. and square in the 258 are not super pure, so FMing with them can, I mean, it like it can certainly be good, um, but it sounds mm-hmm. pretty wacky. And having <laughs> something that's running at the same frequency but a bit more of a conventional waveform um, is pretty is useful for the, for FM purposes, really. Yeah, um, and plus so that, you get a triangle out if you want to use it for audio too. Yeah, which Just, actually, I mean, I kind of used the the triangle on the old ones was I used all the time um, for you know yeah. actually as audio that the audience would hear, um, so. Yeah. Um, I kind of definitely wanted to to keep that in there. What else have I... Did I change anything else about that particular <laughs> module? Um, well, you gave options to reduce the frequency, the full frequency range on the... Yeah, I mean, that's kind of... So basically, um, the original design um, is intended to go... Uh, like your your lowest setting on the front panel is five hertz, and your highest setting on the front panel is twenty kilohertz. I was just like, if you're doing pitch stuff, which mostly I am, uh, and mm-hmm. most of my kind of like bass frequency stuff is in the low hundreds. Yeah, I like the top octave of that from ten k to twenty k is not important to me, um, and it's much more useful to me to be able to. Uh, tune accurately with the controls on the front panel um Mm -hmm. so yeah that's like a a one resistor change to pad down the 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 range of the the course frequency control um and then it's just basically um obviously that reduces your low low and high end so you kind of reduce the range up and down and then kind of calibrate shift the whole thing downwards to get into the range that you want it to be but really the way that it's designed you could make the range of the course control whatever you want it to be having that module for a a couple weeks and uh when it was coming we were kind of talking about the different options um i like i was like what is 20 hertz or 20,000 hertz sound like and i was like oh yeah nothing (laughs) i can't hear it like i've never heard that before and so I started like tweaking down. I think I got maybe around 13 or 14 where I could hear. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm good with 10. Like, I, mean, I don't yeah. want to hang out up in that range anyways. It's I'm not of, making music for bats, as I say. If you, yeah, if you've kind of spent the time that I have spent in bands that operate at the volumes that the bands that I played in did, then oh yeah, stuff above 15K is a, a very little consequence. Um, 
I mean, there's arguments that you can you can still perceive that stuff because of um, basically interference with lower frequencies. So you can hear the um, the cancellation of a yeah. lower frequency um, based on kind of a higher frequency that you can't actually hear. But for most practical purposes, it's not tremendously useful. Um, yeah, yeah. So there was that, and also the, um, I guess, yeah, also the op- the um, shape switch option. On the back. Uh, which, um, again, a couple of people, since I um, put the designs out into the world, have kind of said, oh, why, you know, could it be a toggle? And Yeah, it could be a toggle, but I put toggle switches on the, the 258s that I built um, to go in my Euro system and, and I just never, ever use them. So for me personally, um, I was happy for it to be like, if I desperately need f- like four square waves, <laughs> then I can take the module out and do that for the p- particular purpose that I need that for. But for most of the time, I, I'm happy with it kind of as it, yeah. as nature intended. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of, I mean, other than the gray um, scaled input jack, I mean, it looks like a 258 anyways. And that would, I think, really shift the the look of it too. trying to find a spot where you put that switch. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen uh, modules that bit made by um, Mike Peak, which um, have both like a linear and exponential FM option on a toggle and the wave shape on a toggle. Uh-huh. And obviously if you're, if those are useful to you musically, then you don't have any option, but what, you know, yeah. one of the things that attracted me to the format in the first place is like space on the front panel and, mm-hmm. you know, room to operate controls without hitting stuff. And because I kind of designed and built all of my, euro sized stuff it wasn't too bad but if when i look at a lot of the the euro systems that are out there or you know things that are available it's just like how do you play that (laughs) yeah very delicate hands let's see yeah which you know i Uh, i do not have delicate hands when i'm performing live (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and then so uh, then tell us about the the changes for the two eighty one. So the the two eighty one had um, a couple of issues. So the the self cycling mode, which we uh, mentioned before. Um, so I, I guess some existing versions that works, and some it doesn't. Um, if you look at the original schematic, it's drawn in a really confusing way, um, which I think basically, if you were w- just working from that and not really thinking about what the circuit does, then you mm-hmm. would build a module where it doesn't work, basically. Um, <laughs> but it's not hard to implement, and you know it's kind of so. Put that in. Um, the other thing that um, is a bit of a kind of problem with the original is the both the CV and uh, pulse and pulse outputs are unbuffered, so the the CV is, comes straight off the integrator, the like the core of the envelope. So I've seen a number of people 
report kind of if you stack enough things onto that output it loads the output down and changes the timing of the the envelope which okay. didn't seem yeah. like a useful feature to me for the co- <laughs> for the cost of one op amp and a few resistors per output it, you know it's just stick a buffer on it and um and have something that's kind of impervious to influence from the outside world um and then the other thing yeah. is the the end pulse um basically you well there were a couple of uh things about the end pulse in the original design one is it's generated with a, a kind of a passive pulse shaping network which again is unbuffered so if you load enough things onto it the amplitude of the pulse gets smaller and smaller um mm-hmm. and the other thing is the way that the um uh, the kind of mode switch was implemented in the original design. If you had um, the end pulse of one oscillator connect or, or one envelope generator connected to the input of another, the pulses would mm-hmm. mix together. So if you had two, um, like one that's in cycle mode, you were, it would re-trigger itself when there were other things appearing on the pulse out because they basically oh, just okay. get summed together through two diodes. So I've in the, the 281D, the cycle mode is protected from outside influence on the, the end pulse output jack, basically. Okay. Which gotcha. is a kind of, it's a, it's a niche use case, but um, it, you know, definitely, it's not something that you would expect to happen. So again, <laughs> yeah. And it's an easy change to make. So yeah, it seemed worth yeah. making the change. Yeah. I, th- I think I've come across, um, most of the kind of like, like the unbuffered stuff in the easel where it's just like, Oh wait, I'm using that too much. And that's totally throwing off another, either the timing or the, or the pitch. Um, so yeah, that's, that's useful. Yeah. I mean, it's one um, of these things like when you're designing a system, like I kind of know from the, I work at a company that makes um, like broadcast audio products. And definitely when you make something and put it out into the world, you can absolutely guarantee that you have not thought of all of the ways that the end user is going to try and use it. So yeah. if you like my I, speculation about, a lot of these kind of like shortcomings of the original designs is that you have in your mind when you're designing a particular way of using the system, but actually once it's out in the world, you've got no control over what anyone's doing with it. And so lots of things will start to show up that you just didn't account for. Um, And -hmm. particularly like with the, um, the kind of finite sustain on the easel envelope generator, you can see in the original schematics, there's like there's an attempt to fix that um, that's been mm. added after the fact. Um, there's an ec- some ec- you know extra parts that were added to that improve the behavior, but it doesn't completely fix it. But if you're talking about something where you know Don's making what like thirty of those modules, yeah. it's like it's not worth your time to invest a lot in kind of fixing 
a, like a niche use case scenario of a product that you're just not selling many of. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's kind yeah, of the likelihood that you're even going to hear about those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, later on, is... it it makes sense that these things, you know, aren't already fixed. Um, but mm -hmm. I kind of, as long as I'm going to, you know, do my own boards and uh, build stuff for my own system, I, you know, I'll fix it for myself. And yeah. And so do you, do you think of like what you're doing as, as fixing or is it updating or refining? Like have you kind of, I mean, I guess it's a kind of classify the work. I guess it's a refinement. I mean, my, Personal opinion of the easel envelope generator is that it um, doesn't work properly. That, you know, um, which is not, you know, like I'm not ha like having a go at Don or, or anything like that, but <laughs> um, because I, like I work in a field that's not completely a million miles away from what he did, like the, the company that I work for were building very small numbers of systems which are very high value um mm -hmm. so i definitely get that sometimes well, i mean it now it's very different because but virtually everything that you do is in software so fixing things is a lot easier um but mm -hmm. in a in a more analog world where you have one shot at the hardware if the hardware is kind of 90% there for 90% of your users the the time and effort to go it go back and particularly you know if you're talking about the 1970s like relaying out a board and getting you know you know prototypes of that done and building them up is like massively expensive when i first started yeah. building electronic stuff i had prototype boards done for um a CV controller that I made, which were, I think I had two boards made and they, it cost me kind of like hundreds of pounds to get the two prototype mm -hmm. boards made. And now you can get like 10 boards that size for $10. So <laughs> now you would fix it, but in the seventies, <laughs> yeah. it, it was a much bigger deal making minor changes like that. So yeah. Um, and yeah, a lot of these things are kind of, unless you used the the system in a particular way, you would never see the problem. So it's just kind of bomb proofing, really. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Try, like now, what, in, in all the hindsight that we have and all like the testing that's been done. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like what's the worst thing I could imagine myself doing to this piece of equipment? And then I'll like <laughs> make it survive that, and hopefully you know that's good enough. But yeah, <laughs> um, are you wanting to? We've kind of chatted about the um, the idea be, behind maybe kind of tweaking the two ninety two a bit. Are you want, are you able to talk about that? I mean, I can say uh, bits and pieces. Um, I kind of I'm hesitant to commit myself to sure, sure. work that may or may not get finished. And certainly, you know, I, I have a full-time job, um, which yeah, it, 
um, means I, I'm kind of the, like the the 258 and the 281. Um, well, the 258D and the 281D. Although the actual amount of work that was involved in um, schematic capture, the board layout, prototyping, getting all the documentation together is not that many hours. It took like a year and a half to two years from <laughs> like first when I first opened a blank file and having something where mm -hmm. I was like, this is in a state where I can present it to someone else and I feel like they would be able to understand what I've done and build it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't have anything else that is remotely near that level of completion. Um, yeah. I've obviously, uh, I've done something that's a, an audio source, something that's a CV source. Audio processing is of interest. Um, and certainly mm -hmm. in terms of the 292 and 291, um, if you have built any of those modules and you're trying to use the currently available optocouplers, you'll be aware that the, um, the kind of quality control on the parts that you can get is not good. And the parts are very expensive. Um, well, mm -hmm. individually, they're not that expensive, but if you need four of them from a module and in order to get four good ones, you need to buy 30, they're quite expensive <laughs> yeah. in, um, in that sense. So kind of heresy warning. Um, but I'm quite interested <laughs> in removing the optocoupler from that design, um, and having something that is super repeatable. Um, and replicating the response of the optocoupler by shaping the incoming CV, um, which to mm -hmm. me seems like a, a sensible way of um, attacking that problem with how easy it is to build. Um, yeah. Or how repeatable it is to build if you wanted to make, if you wanted to make two and have them work the same um, at the moment. Mm -hmm just in terms of investment in parts, that's a kind of a, a bit of a feat to undertake. Um, yeah. So yeah. And, and really tweaking in what that response is and yeah, which yeah. is kind of, um, you know, in will involve, I've done a, a bit of kind of preliminary work on, what that might look like. Um, mm -hmm. but I don't have, uh, anything kind of close yet. And I think, uh, yeah, again, with the, the job that's sort of months to a year out <laughs> yeah. at, at minimum. Um, and it may well be that it's kind of, you know, um, you know, Buchler making noise about, you know, doing their own reissues. And it may be that there's just kind of no, you know, no interest in doing that. I mean, I, I have interest mm -hmm. in doing it for my own system because I like, like I say, I, you know, I like building it myself and I like being able to fix it if it goes wrong. Um, yeah. And you can't stop, like you said, you can't. Well, yeah. And there is that. I mean, so <laughs> I, I have like a personal interest in, um, a couple of other designs that are again, kind of, I have the, the Roman Philippov versions, but, 
um, which worked fine, but I would rather have my own implementation of it just for, you know, documentation reasons, really. Um, mm-hmm. Like, particularly the the 230 um, is just mm. super essential for me. Like, I, you know, I can't operate. What do you use it for? So, um, for, like, most of my live performance over the last couple of years, um, I've been doing kind of like a systems music thing where I'll have a bunch of microphones around the um, room, um, which are running into the 230s and um, controlling various parameters of of other modules. Um, And then basically what I'll do is set up the audio generation. So that is kind of free running. And then the Mm -hmm. performance is um, like moving the microphones around the space interacting with the acoustic of the the room um which is kind of i'm nowhere near done with experimenting with that and finding out what i can can do with it um and to me that kind of thing is you know i've seen a, a lot of great shows that are just someone sitting behind a box of electronics completely motionless um but for me that like I don't feel I can do that. Um, it's I, for it's important to me that I feel like the audience can tell what's happening. So like I move mm-hmm. a piece of equipment, and a particular change in the sound that's being generated happens, and they can see like what's happening. It's kind of demonstrative. There's an element of theatre to it, which yeah. is kind of important for live performance. And, you know, I, there's an element of jeopardy because I don't have, I, you can sound check as much as you want, but when there's bodies in the room, the acoustic of the space is completely different. So it takes away some of my control over mm-hmm. what is happening um, and means that I have to react on the fly, um, which it, I think is more interesting for the audience. It's more interesting for me. Um, yeah. And, you know, I might trip over and, fall on my ass so that's and it might be the best part of the show yeah like even if you hate (laughs) what i'm doing musically the fact that i may injure myself might possibly be of some interest (laughs) that's great um do you have any recordings of so i of these work i don't really have anything of that i've done with the bucla system i haven't done any recording for a couple of years which is kind of i think i built the easel in 2015 or 16 i think um Mm -hmm. and then the the bigger um 200 clone system that i have is all kind of post that and i haven't done much recording i have some old stuff which is all um pretty much all like Cynthia, I have a, an EMS Cynthia as well, um, which is also a oh, super wow. cool um, synthesizer. That, uh, like I say, that's the first, really the first synthesizer that I ever played. And I got on really well with the way that it works and the sounds you can get out of it. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, super lucky to to have one of those. Um, uh, so m- kind of most of the electronic stuff that I had done, that I have recorded, uh, was done on on the synthy um so i have 
tried to come up with like the least Googleable band name that I possibly could. So the name that I play under is a music band. <laughs> um, That's good. But you can, I think there's a music band.bandcamp.com. So there's stuff on there, okay. which is cool. Well, yeah, we'll track it out. We'll put it in the notes and stuff so people can. Which is kind of, yeah, I mean, that's check it out. all kind of doesn't have any of this sort of like the envelope, gener- uh, envelope follower uh, mm-hmm. stuff that I've been doing. But I don't really, I don't really know how you would record that. Or if, yeah, or you get a off the board of it, or something. Uh, a recording of it wouldn't really work in the same way as watching it happen in real time. Um, so although yeah. you might get good audio out of it, um, you know, it, it's sort of, um, I think for making it, a, it had to be there, making a record, I, I think I would do something a bit different and kind of, you know, I, it, it's always been a, a thing that I really like when you get a, a record by someone and you go and see them live and it, and it's just different. Mm-hmm. Like you recording in the studio is one thing. And you can do tons of stuff there that you can't do live, but you can also do things live that just wouldn't work on a studio recording. So, yeah. Robert, you live over there? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I just, I, I didn't have much to say this time. You know, the, I was just sort of like, uh, like a listener because I, I haven't had a chance to play with the 258D yet. So I didn't have a lot of questions there, but I was just, kind of enraptured with, <laughs> with what you're saying, especially as you started talking about how you make music, um, which made my mind start to go back to some of the ideas I had of like thinking about performing it live, recording it with a video camera and then, and us and through the soundboard and then playing your recording back through your system again you know, as one of the audio sources. And yeah. I like this sort of like uh, this bottomless pit of, um, you know, just eventually what does it sound like? Is it just a whole bunch of timbres all walking over each other, but it's still going to be distinct each time. Um, like that effect when you look in a mirror and it's like a mirror of a mirror of a mirror. <laughs> like yeah, it's one. tiny and, you know, that was making me think of that. But I did have kind of a lame and boring question, but I'm really curious about it. No, go ahead. Layman Boring is my middle name, so. (laughs) (laughs) The way you package the 258 with that nice book, and like what what was your idea there? I mean, it's really nice. A lot of the other manufacturers don't do that. I mean, for me, I mean, so when I was going through the process of um, making sure that the 258D was buildable, I had to build a few of them. So I had some, like more 258s than I need. Um, so I was kind of, well, <laughs> I guess I might as well sell these to people if they want one. If, you know, if you, if you're kind of building is not your thing. And certainly I, I'm aware that not everyone loves surface mount. Um, like uh, for me, um, it's just more interesting because it's a more challenging process. Um, and kind of, the like the company that I work for, even when we were doing analog products, I, it's been basically all surface mount since the early '90s. Um, so they were like really, really early adopters of um, building things in that way. Um, mm-hmm. I just think it's more more interesting, um, but it's not 
not necessarily for everyone. I mean, I think it's for everyone. I I don't think it's as hard as people think it is. Um, but it meant kind of, you know, I, I've got some spare, so I will kind of make those um, available, to pe- available to people. Um, but if I'm going to sell something and charge someone, you know, it's not an insignificant amount of money for it. I mean, it, in terms of time, I'm kind of basically aiming to break even. Um, um, but I just thought, like, if I'd spent that much money on something, what would I want to get? Mm, yeah. And particularly in terms of what I was really interested in doing with these is making a version of, you know, what, I, what I've said is that these kind of like, they replicate the functionality of the original Buchla modules, but they're not the original Buchla modules. So again, it's kind of, I don't want, like if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I don't want you to have a module that can't be serviced. So I wanted to make sure that all of that information was in there when you get the module. And like, and if you decide that you don't like it in two months and you sell it to someone else, but they wanted the full 20K range on the course frequency control, that there would be something in there that tells them, oh, you know, you can just change that. It's doable. And even yeah. if you don't have the like equipment to do that yourself, it won't be that hard to find someone who can swap a few resistors for you. Um, so that was, that was kind of my thinking behind that. It's just like, what would I want it to look like if I was buying something from someone and what would I feel like I would need in the documentation that came with it to, you know, feel confident about the, the long-term prospect of this working over my musical career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I think your instinct was was spot on. When I bought my 200E system originally, um, it's a, when Bemia was still around, I got a big cardboard box with some packing peanuts and the modules just in there wrapped in, you know, anti-static. <laughs> and they're just, and then a uh, Ziploc bag with banana cables in it. And I thought, man, you know, for the amount of money I just dropped on this, it, this isn't very exciting, but you know, it's okay. Like when you buy an iMac or a Power Mac, MacBook Pro, you know, you get this great packaging. I thought I would have that. But now Buchla USA has nice boxes and I save them all and they've got the easel weasel on them and the name of the module and a serial number. And, and you know, the prices didn't go up, but nice little box it just feels better when it arrives. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't like, it doesn't cost a ton to you get some ESD foam and get the, you know, proper shipping boxes that like, um, and the, and the, the manual thing is like, it was a lot of work to, to put that together. Um, yeah, but, um, in terms of feedback that I've had from the, the couple of people who've, who've bought them, you know, it's, it's just kind of worth it to me for like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to make something and sell it to someone and have them be kind of like, oh, we this is okay, and it does what I wanted it to do, but it wasn't an experience where I felt like someone went out of their way to um, kind of make this super cool. 
and yeah. I and I just like if I bought something from someone that was like, it, you know, it's like ha- handmade, kind of low low volume sort of thing. Like that's what I would want to get. I would want to be like, oh, I, this makes me feel like they've really put the effort in, and and they mm-hmm. care about the experience of the person who's getting it, which you know, it is just it seems logical to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well done. I'm looking at it right now. It's it's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you very much. I mean, yeah. The different folks we talk to who make modules, they all have different backgrounds. You know, one was kind of industrial design, and others, you know, like Eric Fox actually owns Bukla, and it's really interesting to hear the inspiration behind it. You know, the folks that come up with the module design to meet a need that that they. Um, that was lacking, like with Doug, and then, you know, your, your music background. And it, that's really fascinating, you know, the, and that was the same with Don going way back when, you know, the types of musicians that he was working with. And so it's really cool to see that tradition or to hear that tradition keeping on, you know, um, so that I look forward to playing with the 258D if Kyle ever lets me and if I ever see him again, we have fingers <laughs> which crossed. I'm not really sure. Just, I mean, I think it's all like you can uh, IPA wipes will disinfect it and it's all fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was just going to say, yeah, it's definitely uh, for me, it's all sort of, it's all kind of music driven, really. Um, yeah. It, that's sort of like I, I have to need something to for it to be worth putting the, the time in um mm-hmm. and so if if it wasn't for the fact that you know i wanted that particular you know a particular configuration of stuff in the system that i was building because i had particular ideas about what i wanted to achieve musically then yeah. i probably wouldn't have done it but um i did so, so i did feel- <laughs> For when you when you're using Bukla and you don't have a module that you need because it doesn't exist or you simply don't own it, do you fill the gap with Eurorack like so many of us do? I haven't kind of. I don't do much of that, um, mainly because I also have kind of a focus on portability, because like mm. playing live is most of what I do with my system. Um, so the 18 space cabinet in a Peli case is already pretty fucking big. And yeah. <laughs> like, I don't need to add, can, can you get it? Can you get it to close? Uh, not patched. Um, yeah. yeah. Not going to happen. And especially, you know, if like anything that you do that involves stacking bananas, like yeah, it, no, it, it's, yeah. it's over basically. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, like most of what um, what I'm kind of doing, like I just don't want to have to take anything more than that one box to a show. Mm-hmm. Um, so generally speaking, I've tried to make the system have all of the functions that I want. Um, there are some things that um, the existing modules that I have like could do better or could do slightly differently, um, particularly in terms of sequencing and like i have the uh the uh time and triggers from northern light which is like 
super amazing and really capable. Um, but the function that it's doing is replacing something that I had built myself in my Euro size system, which had a lot yeah. more hands-on mm. control. So I've, I've kind of lost the ability to interact with those parameters live because I just can't go through a menu. Um, mm -hmm. in, you know, for a start, I'm, I'm probably drunk. And, <laughs> you know, like what I'm doing might be kind of sort of um, somewhat academic sounding, but really for, for me, it's a rock show. Like, mm -hmm. even if it sounds like Zeet, it should be rock and roll. Um, mm -hmm. And like, you can't do rock and roll in a menu. Like that, that's, well that's, that's a quote. That's not a kind of you know. That's not a performance style that exists. Um, so I think like the the problem is that that module is so dense that if I did something myself that replaced it, that had the functions that I need on the front panel, I would then be missing other stuff that that module does. So. At the moment, like the case is full, and I think I'm at a point where I just don't want to change anything for a couple of years. And I like, mm. I'm going to like wring this for like as much out of it as I can get. And then if there are things that where it's like, well, actually, I don't use that that much, and I really wish I could do this, that I might think about changing some stuff. But at the moment, like it, it, it feels like an instrument, and there are enough possibilities that I haven't got to with it yet that I, like, I don't want to kind of get involved in, in changing that. Sorry, I think that I like really veered off the question there, but. No, no, I mean, it, it echoes what we've heard from other folks, you know, um, one, one extreme or the other when we, I'm not sure if you listened with Mort, uh, the, the interview with Mort, but. I think you know, I'm about barely even halfway through, so. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it's spoiler a alert, he, uh, he, he barely even uses Bukla now. You know, he has a very yeah. small system and then uses digital for everything else. And um, for me, you know, my I have a 24U system. It's quite large. Um, but there are sometimes things that I really miss, like sequential switch yeah. or voltage-controlled switch. And or and then until I got the delay recently, I mean, a delay module other than the 277, which I don't I don't have in my system because it's not E. Yeah. Um, but. But then I also find, and, and I thought you were going to say something similar to my own experience, but I try to fill the gap with Eurorack, but then I end up just not using it because it's not it's not part of the it's not part of the patching experience, you know. And um, yeah, you like I replaced it. I got the two thirty E to replace the Swashtapol because I really wanted to have that, and and I just never used the Swashtapol, but I use the two thirty E all the time. Yeah, I mean, kind of it, an interesting thing. It's if you're going outside of the the box, then it's a different instrument, um, and it's not really like. I mean, I guess like if you're a, a a player of electric instruments, like a guitar or whatever, then you have effects. But because they're kind of, it still feels to me like that's a separate thing. So like I. I do uh, play guitar as well, and that I went through a bit of a period of kind of like uh, buying 
effects pedals, and then eventually mm-hmm. um, got to the point where, particularly when I was preparing for playing live, where I was going to have synthesizer and guitar. And I was just like, I can't do the synthesizer and the guitar and have all this shit on the floor. Like, I just need the guitar to be connected to the amplifier and and then I'll worry about the synthesizer and kind of, and it, you know, I have a couple, like a, a CV controller that I built, which is uh, like floor based. Uh, that's, I mean, I guess kind of like a Taurus style thing where I can just pre, or preset, mm. or I guess like a, if you think about like a, one one two or something like that so you can preset voltages but it's foot switches yeah. to select which voltage is output and generate a gate and a pulse um so that i can have some kind of control over a synthesizer while i'm doing something else with my hands and it's like yeah. that is okay but i can't have another thing as well as that <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm not that good <laughs> And like you said, you might have had a few at that point, and it's like, you know, I can barely chew gum and walk at the same time. So, yeah, I understand. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're, yeah, we're over an hour, so we should probably oh, wow. yeah, wrap things up. Um, and I don't think your listeners yeah, need an there... hour of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess, is there anything else you wanted to, to talk about? One of the things that I really was hoping for in into like when I made the, you know, put the designs out in the, in the world is that maybe other people who were kind of doing the same thing that I'm doing, but not putting their designs out there would go, Oh, well maybe I'll do that. Spur them on. And yeah, because like, I don't particularly have the desire or time to go through and recreate every Buchla module that exists for a start a lot of them I don't particularly need in my system. So I don't have any drive to do that. My time is super limited, but I do think it's Mm -hmm. cool if though, if the kind of, if you're interested in the electronics, if that information is out there so that while, you know, when you're building a module, you can actually learn something about how it works, um, which again, you know, is something that I've always tried to do when I'm, building something like I I just don't like the kind of paint by numbers assembly thing. Um, yeah. You know, that, that like you said, yeah, just stuff in a board really okay. feels like, um, you know, minimum wage work, just picking <laughs> things from a bin, from a list and stuffing them into a board, you know? <laughs> yeah. You, it's there's no it's it can be meditative but it it's not kind of mentally stimulating mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i i know people that get into that zone of like oh yeah i just love to zone out and solder stuff or what you know and fill stuff up but um but it seems like on the path that you've gone and having it being so tied of like you know, yeah, like if this thing catches fire, <laughs> I'm going to be able to <laughs> to get it working again. So, uh, yeah, it's really cool. I appreciate, yeah, this angle that you're that you've done with these modules and, you know, maybe more. Yeah, yeah. maybe more. I mean, it's certainly like in terms of the stuff that I need for my own performance, I will probably do 
some of those at some point in the future when I kind of, if I feel like once I've kind of run this system into the ground that there's something underneath that ground that I need to get to that I haven't got to yet. Um, yeah. And I guess those will probably be kind of like more like original designs. Um, but again, if I'm doing stuff like that, like I don't particularly have any interest in once I've done that design work and proved that it's buildable, I'm not, I don't really have like a, a keen interest in then building that a hundred times. I would much rather yeah, now like let's, let's make money off this. <laughs> put that out into the world and let other people do whatever they, they want with it. And it's kind of, it's serving its purpose for me in a practical sense. Um, which is the, you know, that's the kind of the, the like key for me. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for, for being on the show. No problem. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking me. We'd like to thank Daniel Skevington for being on the show. Visit dunningtonaudio.co.uk for more information on his modules. A few podcasts we really like and suggest you listen to. Tim Held's podcast, The Podular Modcast. Ben Wilson and Ed Ball's Esoteric Modulation. And Jay Ryan's podcast called The Deerhorn, which focuses on Seattle Lombard instruments. Visit waveformagazine.com for more details on how to subscribe to the Quarterly Synthesizer magazine. If you want to help support the show, you can do so through Patreon at patreon.com slash source of uncertainty. And you can get your source of uncertainty t-shirts at sourceofuncertainty.threadless.com. You can find out more about the show or contact us through the website sourceofuncertainty.audio. We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at sourceofuncertainty and on YouTube. We will see you next month. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.